All right. So I wanted to start off by asking you when your first sociology class was. Uh, it was as an undergraduate, and um, I took it as part of a requirement for my minor. Um, I had to minor in something different from my major because uh, my major was music history. Um, so I just kind of very randomly selected sociology because it didn't match uh, what my major was. And um, so as part of that minor, I had to take an introductory sociology class, which was really my first encounter with sociology. Before that, I had been assigned a paper in one of my music history classes, a uh, very random assignment that one of the uh, things I was supposed to write about is the sociology of uh, Baroque music. <laughs> um, Interesting. And I had no idea what, what sociology was. Um, so I did a lot of research in the process of writing the paper and I kind of developed an interest in sociology just as an approach. So when I had to select a minor, that's how I ended up uh, selecting sociology. Yeah, how exactly do you write a sociology paper about Baroque music? Is, is that a time period of music, correct? Yeah, so the, the Baroque era is, uh, you know, the leading sort of composers of that era would be people like Bach, uh, you know, Vivaldi. Um, and so one of the things that you would look at is, you know, when you think about composers or just music generally, you can sort of study the music itself, uh, or you can look at the context within which the music was uh, created. And so in order to understand Baroque music, for example, you have to understand the social context. So, you know, it was a patronage system. So you didn't have autonomous composers. Composers were always working for somebody uh, that kind of dictated to some degree what you could and couldn't do. Uh, so there's always this kind of tension between, you know, how do I do what I want to do creatively and how do I reconcile that with what my boss uh, wants me to do and how does that fit in with the larger expectations within the culture at the time uh, and so on. So there's a lot of that stuff that influences the nature of the music itself, uh, the way it's written and the way it's conceived. Um, so the creative process is sort of bound up in what's going on in the society at the time, and in that particular period, it was it was a patronage system. So um, there were, there were no kind of uh, independent free agent composers. They were all always working for somebody. Uh, so that's that's basically what the sociology would be about. So on that note, ultimately, do you believe that life more often imitates art, or art imitates life? Um, well. <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't know if I would approach it either or. I think it kind of. I, I I look at it as a kind of a reciprocal uh, relationship. Um, I'm not sure if it goes one way or the other. I think it's sort of a bit of both. Uh, there's a kind of an interaction that goes on uh, between the two. Um, you know, I mean, you know, if, if you're looking at it from a sociological uh, standpoint, uh, the the tendency would be to look at the art reflecting life uh, in a way. Because uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's how people are living uh, in their particular social, uh, cultural milieus uh, that then determine the nature of the creativity. Um, so if I had to do it from a sociological standpoint, that's what I would say. But just taking a step back, looking at it in terms of a, just a listener uh, and what I like 
and uh, what I don't like, I would I would probably tend to want to look at it as an interaction instead of one or the other. That makes sense, especially because as music evolves, it creates new trends as well. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't exist in isolation from all the other things going on in the society and the culture, and a lot of it is you know economic. Uh, for better or worse, that, that dictates what can and cannot be done uh, and what people will and will not do. Right? Uh, so it's not, it doesn't exist, you know, in a kind of a vacuum. There's all these other things going on that, uh, that, that produce what we eventually end up getting as, uh, as the music itself, which applies, you know, to all the arts. I mean, that's not unique to music. I mean, that, there's a very consistent pattern where you see very similar kinds of relationships, you know, whether you're a painter or a writer or whatever. So obviously being so familiar with sociology gives you probably a different perspective on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask, is there anything that you've noticed about Western culture and specifically American culture, which is just very prominent and unique, especially in the art forms? Well, I mean, you know, the, the U.S. has a really interesting music history, obviously, just because of the intersection of all of these different, because we're a multicultural, multiracial society. Um, you know, unlike Europe, for example, Europe is uh, has nowhere near the kind of um, diversity uh, we have had historically. And from the beginning, we were, we're you know, a country of immigrants. So there's always been this, this diversity. Um, and so it's sort of the interconnection of those things that create a very distinct, uh, you know, styles of music, you know, for example, uh, jazz, uh, emerges in the U S because of the mix of European influences and, uh, you know, indigenous, uh, black influences, you know, spirituals and things like that, the blues, uh, country, uh, and then when, when, when blues and country mixed with rockabilly, then you got rock and roll, um, which again is a uniquely American, uh, you know, genre. Uh, and then later something very similar happens with, um, with, with hip hop, very similar kind of thing where it was, a, it was sort of a mixture of European uh, sensibilities and, um, and some of the black uh, traditions uh, so, I, yeah, because America is so diverse, it has created these kind of interesting hybrids uh, musically, which gives us things like the blues and jazz and, um, and hip hop and rock and roll, uh, which you just don't see anywhere else. So that, that's kind of unique. That doesn't make us you know, better or worse. It just means that because of this diversity, it's created a really interesting mix, especially in terms of music, you know, which is what I'm mostly yeah. interested in. Uh, in, in Probably you could make a similar argument uh, with other uh, art forms, but I think music would stand out as, as particularly unique uh, in the American uh, experience for sure. So when it comes to teaching, what is your favorite topic to teach? Would it be music or is it something more specific, like something that we've learned in our class? Well, I don't, I don't really teach music so much because um, <clears throat> I, you know, I've, I've never had the opportunity to teach a class in the sociology of music, although I would love to if it ever came up. Um, you know, mostly what I teach is uh, is political uh, sociology, specifically uh, media and politics. Um, 
So I've been doing that for 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 many years. So so the the subject that I think I like the most is media and politics, um, which I've been doing for. I don't, I don't teach it at Pace. I also teach at Columbia, um, and I've been teaching media and politics there for years, uh, which I really like. And and we also do uh, within that general framework. I teach a course on uh, media and identity, uh, which I like a lot. Uh, so yeah, media and politics and media and identity would be my two favorite uh, subjects to teach. That sounds very interesting. So when it comes to more modern like politics, especially with the media, do you think that social media and the internet is like harming our system in any way in our political system? Like, do you believe it will be beneficial in the long run? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, well, you know, this is the uh, subject of much debate, uh, needless to say. Um, the, the, the weight of the evidence so far doesn't mean that we're sort of condemned to this forever. Uh, but the weight of the evidence is that, you know, social media has kind of, you know, working in conjunction with other things going on in society, so it wouldn't be social media by itself, uh, has undermined a lot of the kind of the foundations that are necessary uh, in a democratic society. So if you start from the premise that, you know, we want to maintain a democracy and you prefer democracy over other forms of government. So if you presuppose that, um, then I think you can make the case that there, 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 there are things about social media and the kinds of communication that it uh, fosters that are kind of uh, not very compatible with what is necessary uh, in a democracy. Um, so you can look at it just in terms of the kind of what we would call discourses that uh, social media promotes, encourages, uh, or discourages. And the forms of discourse that social media has sort of a built-in uh, preference for uh, are not particularly compatible with the, the, the sort of the discursive requirements in a, in a democracy, if that makes sense. Does that make any sense? Yes. <laughs> it that sounds does. a little uh, esoteric, but you know, for a democracy presupposes that people can communicate. Um, and it presupposes that people don't agree about things. Uh, there always is going to be, you know, conflicts and factions. But it also presupposes that you can achieve some kind of mutual understanding about what your adversaries believe, and then they understand what you believe. And then we, through communication, try to reach some kind of shared understanding uh, and then from there arrive at some kind of a consensus uh, view about whatever it is. Uh, no one gets 100% of what they want. It's always gonna be kind of a compromise, but you arrive at that place through a form of discourse and communication. Um, whereas with social media, that process kind of breaks down because social media has these kind of built-in uh, incentives and uh, sort of kind of structural biases. Um, that sort of undermine a lot of those basic uh, principles. And so for that reason, I think for now anyway, you could say that, the, that, that if democracy is the goal, maintaining healthy democracy is the goal, that just the basic design architecture of uh, social media is kind of at odds with that in terms of the kind of communication that it fosters, uh, the kind of discourses that it fosters. So, you know, the problem of disinformation, for example, is sort of part of this problem. Uh, the, uh, you know, if you spend much time on Twitter, you know that it's really not about having a sort of a, a debate necessarily. It's all about scoring points 
you know, calling out the hypocrisy of your opponent, and then they're calling out your hypocrisy. And there's it's just a kind of a back and forth, but there's no real kind of substantive discourse that's happening. Uh, it's entertaining and it's fun, you know. It's, <laughs> I, I love I love reading uh, you know, Twitter, for example. Uh, but there's really nothing that's coming out of it, right? Uh, yeah. It's 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 a it's just sort of a back and forth um, approach of you know trying to uh, you know one up uh, your adversary, whoever that might be. Uh, you know, and then you throw into that the tendency towards a kind of, you know, almost bordering like on hate speech um, and so on. It all adds up to a situation that makes it really difficult in a democracy to kind of govern ourselves, uh, which is kind of what you have to do in a democracy. But that would be sort of my my short answer. But, you know, like I said there, there are people who believe that it, it's also adds certain things, you know, obviously people have more of a voice than they ever had. So that's a, that's an upside. You know, in the old days, you had the gatekeepers who decided who got access to media and who didn't. And those days are gone and that's good. Um, but at the same time, there is this, here, here's the debate. And we're going to actually talk about this in class, uh, probably uh, when we when we get back from the break, I believe. No, I think in this class we're going to have we're going to do gender, then we're going to do politics. But the the debate is, you know, are are we capable? Are we competent to govern ourselves um, as as a society? Um, and you know, there there's I think a good faith argument on either side of that. You know, on the one hand, you can make an argument that no, we're not really competent right? uh, as as a society, as a culture, uh, to, to govern ourselves. Uh, and then on the other side, you know, you can make a good faith argument that yeah, yes, we are. Right. So, uh, but that that's kind of a, a central uh, discussion that's going on right now uh, among people who uh, you know think about this stuff. Um, you know, there's the whole other issue of the polarization and the so-called political sectarianism, uh, all of which, you know, just to some degree related to the discourses of social media. Like, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of the echo chamber. Um, yes, I'm or, writing or a the, paper about that for another class yeah, right now. The, the, the filter bubble, uh, the algorithmic uh, bias uh, that, you know, produces all this. Um, you know, there's, there's something called surveillance capitalism, uh, which I'm not sure if you've heard that term before, having to do with just the, all of the data collection that goes on, uh, you know, creating a kind of a model of what we would call in sociology, the public sphere, which is where all this kind of communication is supposed to be happening. Um, there's a sense that this, the public sphere is kind of broken down. Um, not simply because of social media by itself, it's sort of the interaction of social media with all the other stuff going on in the society, you know, the, the, the increasing polarization, uh, the demographic uh, shifts. I think when we talked about social inequality in our class, I pointed out this kind of urban-rural uh, divide, you know, between sort of the urban centers where all the economic activity is happening, uh, where people tend to benefit from globalization and technology, uh, and then there are these other vast areas within the country that are being left behind as a result of all that. Um, and that sort of created a, a real volatile uh, political situation because the two worlds just don't overlap. So people in rural areas look at people living in New York City as sort of foreign. Uh, we look at them as kind of foreign, right? uh, not quite the same uh, country almost. And so that that's also sort of part of this whole uh, debate about 
the impact that social media is having. <clears throat> so would you personally believe that social media should be held accountable or it's the people who have been held accountable or should be? <clears throat> well, that's another really, that's a very, very debatable uh, issue. There is, you know, the First Amendment, which is something that is, is, is sort of central to the debate. Uh, and that is to say, you know, so let's just say we accept that the, the discourse that happens, the disinformation, all this other stuff that's kind of built into the social media uh, business model. We're unhappy about it, want to do something about it. Um, there's only so much you can do because there is the First Amendment, right? So the First Amendment protects people who want to say mean things. It protects people who want to say false things. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it's pretty much anything goes in the area of political uh, discourse, uh, which would include, you know, disinformation, you know, conspiracy theories, that's all protected speech. Um, so if we say it's a problem, then the question is, well, okay, who are we going to put in charge of regulating and moderating the speech that we don't like? So if we say that, you know, let's just say conspiracy theories uh, are, um, are counterproductive, uh, we shouldn't allow these to flourish online. They can be dangerous. Again, you know, obviously, a lot of the conspiracies around COVID, the pandemic, vaccines, some of this has actually been quite, quite deadly, uh, in fact. So how do we, how do we manage that? Um, and you, you always run into a First Amendment question. Um, the, only, the only thing, I don't know how deeply you get into this, but are you familiar with the debate about uh, what's called Section 230? of the uh, Telecommunications Act. This sounds really familiar. I'm not totally sure. It's, it's, it was a, it's, it's a protection that the platforms have basically. And what it means is that the platforms can't be sued uh, for, for whatever damage may occur from speech that happens on their platforms. Um, because the idea is, is that if, 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 if someone said something on social media that I didn't like that hurt me somehow, um, and then I decide I'm gonna sue Facebook for allowing this to be said on their platform, uh, then the whole thing would just shut down, right? I mean, there, there'd be no social media because they it couldn't operate. So they had to build in this protection uh, for the platforms so that if I wanna sue that person, I can, if I really wanted to, but I can't sue the platform um, because the platform is not a publisher, it's a, it's, it's a platform. Uh, whereas, you know, if, if, if someone in, you know, the New York Times or something publishes a false story about me, um, you know, I, I could sue them for libel uh, because they are a publisher, not a platform. <laughs> um, so Facebook is a platform, not a publisher, even though they have a lot of stuff that's published on their platform, but they're not the ones ultimately responsible. So, so, so Section 330 makes it so that all of this stuff that goes on on social media that we might define as problematic, uh, there, there's no real legal remedy for that in the current context, unless we get rid of that section, which some people are debating, uh, doing, uh, and you get an interesting kind of left-right uh, agreement on that. You know, the people on the far left who would like to get rid of it, there are people on the far right who would like to get rid of it. Uh, but the concern is if you did, uh, it, it would really sort of throw into question how this whole model even uh, can work. Um, not that it couldn't happen, but there would have to be some major, major uh, revisions in, in, in our thinking about the, these platforms and, and, and how they operate uh, on a lot of different levels. 
Um, so that's kind of the challenge, right? Is you got the free speech issue. Uh, and then with social media, you got an issue with the fact that most of this communication is happening on platforms, not publishers. Um, and so therefore there, there are few options uh, that you have to, to moderate uh, the speech. And so you have to kind of leave it up to the companies themselves, which they sort of do. Um, but, you know, they have an economic incentive and they don't necessarily see that moderating speech is going to be good for their bottom line. You know, Facebook is, is famous for this, for allowing all kinds of stuff to happen on their platform, primarily because it's what engages, you know, the, the users and their whole economic model is based on um, time on site, right? So if the more inflammatory kind of discourse, uh, conspiracy stuff, false information, if that's what keeps people on the platform, uh, which it does, uh, then they have no incentive to get rid of it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what can you do? You can't, you, they're not gonna do something that's not in their economic interest. Um, they have some public relations problems, you know, because the this story that came out, I think we may have mentioned it in our class at the time about uh, Instagram uh, and the impact that Instagram uh, is, is having yes. on, you know, teenage girls in particular. And I read um, that article. It was a really good article. Yeah. And so, you know, again, what do you do about that? You can't, you can't sue Facebook. Um, so part of the issue then there was that was bad PR, right? Uh, so, so that that could create an incentive for Facebook to change its behavior only because in the end, they're looking at the bottom line. And if they fear that they're gonna use, they're gonna lose a lot of users because of the bad PR, people start looking at Facebook as this evil corporation. Uh, and so go to some other platform. Part of the problem is they're kind of a monopoly, um, but in never, any case, if, that's the kind of thing that could theoretically create an incentive for companies to change their behaviors somewhat and some of their business practices. Uh, but you know, we no one really knows because no one, you know, all of that information it's sort of proprietary. In other words, we don't really know. We know sort of how much the company's worth, but as far as what's going on behind the scenes and the decision making process and what they prioritize and what they don't, how much they're willing to accept. Uh, at loss uh, by moderating content is hard to say. So that it's it's probably a longer answer than uh, than you uh, needed. But needless to say, there are a lot of real serious obstacles uh, to, well, to to addressing the problem. It raises a lot of questions. Um, yeah. One question that this has got me wondering about is now there are a lot. Obviously, social media has a lot of influence, but do you think that the public is more susceptible to social media's influence and the companies, or the companies are more susceptible to the public's opinions and influence? I think the social media companies have way more power, right? So uh, I think the general public is way more susceptible, vulnerable uh, to what happens on these, uh, on these platforms. You know, I think under some conditions, you know, given the kind of scandal that happened with this Instagram story um, that creates such bad PR for Facebook, they, they see that as potentially impacting the bottom line. Uh, and that's enough to get them to change their behavior. But that's fairly rare. Often it's very fleeting. 
you know, there'll be this outrage for a while and demands that they do something and then we move on to something else, right? Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not even close, right? It's, it's a very one-sided uh, relationship uh, at, at this point. Again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that these are basically monopolies, you know, you don't have much choice. Um, in many parts of the world, you know, we're, slightly different situation in this country and most of the advanced economies. But, you know, in many parts of the world, Facebook is the internet. That's it. There, there is no, there's nothing else. Um, whereas, you know, we can sort of mix that up a little bit with things like maybe TikTok or, uh, you know, Twitter. Um, but, you know, in many parts of the world, there, there is no alternative. It is, it is Facebook, right? Uh, and that, which creates even a bigger problem in those parts of the world where, where the damage has been much, much worse. Um, yeah, so that, I don't think that one is even close. So something that I find interesting is Facebook has a much larger following of older people. Right. Uh, the younger generations, that's why Instagram was bought by Facebook because they're more drawn towards that. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think that from generation to generation, we are becoming or degressing as a society in the way that we are able to communicate and function? Well, you know, that goes back to the question we were talking about earlier about democracy and the kind of discourses that it requires. Um, And, you know, as I said, there's there's a bit of a debate about this, but I, I think there is a concern that the that the discourse is uh, you know eroding, uh, you might say, uh, in terms of what is. So if you, if you're sort of looking at it in the sense, you know, is is our communication getting better? Is our discourse getting better, um, or is it getting worse? I think the answer is it's getting worse. Um, is that inevitable? For the rest of uh, history, I don't. Who knows? Uh, but if you're if you were to kind of measure it, uh, I think you could you could make a strong argument that 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 has been degraded uh, to the point that it is really hard uh, in many cases to have a kind of um, the the technical term is normative uh, communication, uh, which is sort of the foundation of a democratic system. Um, that that's kind of broken down, um, and and it seems like it's getting worse, not better. Uh, will that change at some point? Because the the only other thing to keep in mind too, and that is that these technologies are really really new. Um, you know, you're you're young enough that this you're, you're I think you'd probably would be called a digital native, right? uh, in the sense that you don't really know anything else than this, uh, more or less. Um, but you know, it's worth keeping in mind that this this technology is in its infancy. Um, so it's very possible that your generation will figure this out, right? Will realize that you know if the current approach is just not sustainable, uh, and come up with some you know creative uh, solutions, you know, whether policy wise or technology wise, which is always possible because you know this is still really really early. Uh, in the process, um, you know, if you look at communication technologies in, in you know, in, in this in the sweep of history, um, again, this is really really new, um, and so where we're going to be twenty years from now is is really hard to say, because uh, you know your generation, you know, is 
can have a lot of influence uh, one way or the other on, on what direction this all goes. So what would you say is the best possible outcome from this new technology? Well, uh, that, that's a good, I, I, I'm not actually sure I know, you know, I mean, in an ideal world, we would have a, you know, we would have platforms that didn't incentivize this kind of uh, discourse, but that's their business model currently, right? Uh, so therefore, you know, you either have to imagine, which could happen, you know, an entirely new business model uh, that wasn't so dependent on time on site and data collection. If you can imagine that, then you can maybe imagine that the, um, that there'd be some improvement um, in, in, in the quality of, of the discourse. The only thing that you have to also keep in mind too, though, is that it's, it's, it's not just the technology in isolation from what's happening in the society. Um, so it's, again, it's not as though you could say, all right, we could just sort of a thought experiment. We can fix the platforms. Um, we still have the deep social divisions, for example, uh, and the polarization and everything else. Um, would, 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 would that balance out, you know, by some miracle, we could kind of uh, address the problems of the platforms and that's, you know, who knows, right? Um, but I think in the, in the future, if there were a solution uh, in which let's just say we could sort of create a better quality of discourse, um, then that would be a step in the right direction. But then again, that, there's so many other things going on besides just the, the communication that you'd have to you'd have to look at as well. If, I mean, if that's the concern. So if the concern is our our, our democracy is kind of uh, collapsing around us, um, then it wouldn't just be the communication. That would be a part of it, be a big part of it. But it wouldn't be that by itself. So it's not it's not operating in isolation from a lot of other things going on. Uh, in the side, like those divisions that we talked about between more rural parts of the country and the more urban parts, uh, th that's that's sort of baked into the whole uh, system at this point. So that may or may not, you know, change just because of a, a more quality uh, form of communication. Okay. Um, so, do you think that there are specific people or social figures? who are part of the problem for why we are having issues with our democracy or are they oh. just symptoms? Um, that's, that's a good, a good question. I think, you know, there, there, there always have been, you know, what we could just call political opportunists, uh, political operatives um, who are always looking for ways of capitalizing on things that are going on in the society. Uh, they used to call them moral entrepreneurs, uh, you know, where they, they, they look for these kinds of divisions uh, that are happening, and then they exploit them for their own sort of political purposes. So there always have been those kind of actors, we might just call them bad faith actors uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the process. Um, it's just that, you know, the, the tools now have become much more sophisticated, much more, uh, you know, uh, powerful uh, for doing that kind of thing. That's, you know, not in and of itself particularly new. 
Um, so I don't, you know, it's not that there are specific people by name as much as it is a certain kind of person uh, who is in our politics um, in which they're able to magnify, amplify conflicts, uh, not to get at some kind of, you know, understanding about whatever it is that people are anxious about. Uh, but again, to almost do the opposite, right? To sort of to, to, to um, amplify the anxiety, the anger, the frustration, because, you know, as a, it's generally true that the more upset people are about something, the more easy they are to kind of mobilize. Uh, you know, if you're basically okay with things, uh, nothing particularly bothers you. Um, you know, you're, you're a difficult person to, uh, to, 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 to provide any kind of motivation to get out and vote, for example. Um, but if you're angry about something um, and you're frustrated or you're afraid uh, or you're anxious, very often those are the kinds of things that really mobilize uh, support. So if, you're, if your job as a political operative is to mobilize support of given you know, constituents, um, then you know, these are the kinds of ways that you can do that, right? By, by detecting these anxieties that exist um, and then exploiting them, amplifying them. Uh, and then the next thing you know, you know, you do have these very angry kinds of uh, politics happening, uh, but it does serve a purpose if the purpose is simply to get people out uh, to vote. It doesn't do much in terms of resolving whatever the underlying issue is, uh, but it, in, in the short term, it's, it's effective, right? I mean, it always has been. Um, and whether, whether it works in the larger scheme of things, you know, to win an election or not is hard to say. It sort of depends. In some cases it, it does. I think in other cases it doesn't. Um, but that's, but is, that's the is, other complicating factor. But is this beneficial or harmful to society? Well, it's harmful to the, to the democracy for sure, which, you know, by extension would mean society, uh, because it's just one more factor in the breakdown of the discourse. Uh, that we were talking about earlier, uh, that makes it difficult for people to reach some kind of shared understanding. So let's say that you're really not happy about, you know, a, a vaccine mandate or a mask mandate. Um, you know, so we could say that there are good faith actors out there who are concerned about vaccines, let's say. Um, perfectly reasonable, right? Some people are a little suspicious, they're skeptical, you know, it's not as though the medical establishment necessarily has earned our trust. Um, so yeah, that's fair game. Uh, and then there are other people, you know, who, who believe in, in the science and believe in the medical establishment. So you have these two different sides, right? Uh, who are somewhat at odds. So instead of coming together and say, okay, I see what you're saying, I understand where you're coming from, and then you understand where I'm coming from, let's see if we can come up with some kind of mutual uh, agreement here. That's not happening. Again, instead, it's pitting once against the other. One side sees the other side as an existential threat. Um, and, and that's where the whole thing just breaks down. Uh, and it has, you know, had some very real consequences. If you look, I mean, the data on the... Um, the, 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 uh, if you look at like infection rates and death rates, uh, it's, it's very partisan, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty, uh, pretty remarkable if you look at the numbers in terms of how this has impacted 
the likelihood of dying from the virus, the likelihood of contracting the virus um, does correlate uh, with your partisan identification. Uh, and that's, that's the downside of viewing everything through this kind of either or zero sum uh, political lens, which is kind of where we are today. So moving on to some more subjects, mm -hmm. you brought up COVID and I wanted to ask you, what do you think after COVID is going to be? Because there's this very popular kind of phrase in the media of once all this is over, after this is done, do you see this ending? Um. Well, you know, I don't, I have no real insight on that other than, you know, there are people who I respect who do, um, and, and they, they seem to be saying um, that we'll, we'll never kind of, if, if by this ending, we're going to go back to something like what we were before, that's probably not going to happen. Um, because I think, I think this has brought on some, you know, some what are likely to be fairly uh, permanent changes in the society. Um, it's possible that they will be for the good, right? Uh, when it's all over, you could say. Uh, but whatever it is, it's gonna—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's not gonna go back to what it was. I think there's pretty much a consensus about that. Uh, the debate seems to be, you know, is it, are, we, are we gonna be better off? We're gonna be worse off? Um, I mean, you—you you would hope we would be better off in the sense that we would be better prepared right? um, for the next uh, pandemic, because I think there's also a general consensus uh, that, you know, it's not if, but, you know, it, but when uh, there's another pandemic uh, in an odd sort of way, we, it sounds kind of um, contradictory to say, but, you know, th this, this particular virus, as bad as it is, could have been a lot worse. Um, and that's what has people worried, right? In other words, it could have very easily been something that was more deadly and more contagious. I mean, this, again, this is bad enough. Uh, but, it, but, but given what we know about this uh, and the global nature of our world uh, today, uh, you know, that, that has a lot of people concerned. And so the question is, you know, will we learn from our mistakes this first time around? And then when we are faced with the next one, uh, will we be better off? So you would hope right, uh, that we would, we would take some of what we learned this first time out um, and, and apply that when it happens again. Uh, so in that sense, you could say we'll be better off, right? But that assumes that we actually do that. Okay. And then shifting again, once again, very different topic. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's the founders of sociology, which you learned about in class. Is there any specific founder that you have resonated with over time or agree with the most? Um. So, yeah, I mean, in, in classical sociological theory, you know, you've got Marx, Durkheim, Weber, and a few others. Um, and in the way that we approach it anyway in sociology is that they all offer a set of tools, basically conceptual tools, uh, that can be, you know, applied to specific kinds of questions, uh, depending on what it is you're trying to uh, analyze. Um, so it would be hard to say that one is better than the other. <laughs> uh, it sort of depends on the kind of questions that you're asking and what, what it is that you're trying to understand. Um, 
I, I would say, you know, I think uh, of, so let's just say we're going to stick with Mark Durkheim and Weber. Um, the, the one that seems to be the most prescient in terms of which direction the society is going to go uh, is probably Weber, uh, particularly his emphasis on the, the nature of bureaucracy um, and, the, and the tendency toward what he called instrumental rationality, uh, which is the desire to make things more and more and more efficient. Um, and how, from his perspective, that it kind of creates this kind of a trap uh, that gets sort of, he, he referred to it as the iron cage, uh, in which we are drawn to make things more efficient for ourselves, which we do. Uh, but sometimes we, we don't perceive at the time what we are losing in the process, if that makes sense. Um, so it depends, you know, also on things like what, do you, what, what is a human being, right? uh, for example? Uh, what is the nature of being human? Uh, what is the nature of subjectivity? What is the nature of consciousness? You know, those kinds of questions. Um, and so, you know, the general agreement among the classical figures um, is, you know, as we discussed at the time in the class that, you know, human beings as a species have certain sort of shared fundamental needs, such as the need for meaning, belonging, uh, connection, purpose, uh, structure, all those kinds of things define us as a species, right? period. Uh, so if you start with that, then the question is, well, what kind of society do we create? And to what degree do we create a society that facilitates our ability to achieve those goals that we all have as humans, you know, meaning, purpose, belonging, uh, et cetera? Uh, or to what degree do we create a society that is kind of at odds with that? Um, and, and that's always been seen as what is sometimes referred as the modern dilemma, right? Because on the one hand, we get a lot of really great things in modern society in terms of the technology and the efficiency and, you know, if the standard of living goes up, life expectancy goes up, all these things improve. But then at the same time, you know, you also have the problem of, you know, alienation, uh, the sense of disconnection, meaninglessness, purposelessness, uh, and so on. Um, and so it's trying to kind of reconcile those two things. So from that standpoint, I think probably of the three, the one that got it closest to sort of where we find ourselves today would probably be Weber. Um, if that's the question, right? When that happens to be a question I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in anyway, just in my, my interest in media and whatnot, um, are issues of consciousness, subjectivity, uh, and so on. Um, and I think he probably had some of the better, more relevant insights. Although, you know, you could say that about uh, you know, Durkheim and Marx as well. Uh, that, that's why it kind of depends on the questions that you're asking. Um, you know, if you're asking about like questions related to, um, to power, for example, uh, Marx, I think offers some really good tools that can be used to, to understand how power operates in society. Um, if your interest is mostly in culture, uh, for example, Durkheim uh, has a lot of really important insights 
as well. So it's it's kind of hard. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't classify myself as in any particular camp, right, or uh, any particular school of thought, uh, other than drawing on 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 whichever seems to be the most uh, applicable in a given situation. And that's you know most I can't say that for everybody, but most sociologists kind of approach it that way. So, yes, you explained you do approach everything differently. Is there any topic or specific issue, though, that you've personally found very hard to apply sociological standpoints to or explain without just talking about what's ethical or what's moral? Well, you know, I mean, sociology doesn't do very well at explaining individual behavior, right? Um, so, you know, if you're asking why a particular person did what they did, so if it's a behavioral science, which it is, um, and, you know, you're reading about somebody who did something. So, for example, you know, there is this uh, is in the news everywhere today about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, the, the, the young man who was uh, accused of, you know, killing those people in a protest. Uh, he was acquitted. Um, so, so take that young man as an example. Um, I have no clue what was going on in his head, right? I had no real insight on that one way or the other. So as a sociologist, there would be no way to kind of analyze that. Uh, now you could take a step back and look at the bigger questions having to do with you know, the culture and how it relates to things like firearms and how we think about you know, how do we define self-defense? You could put it in that kind of broader context. Um, but if you're looking for answers about why a person did what they did, using that as an example, sociology is not gonna be very helpful. Um, and that, you know, that's what makes, that, that's what people find frustrating about it. Because uh, I think we have a we have a desire to know why people do what they do, uh, and sociology doesn't really have any answers for that. It only it can only take a particular case and situate it within the larger uh, context, in which it may or may not apply in a given case. That's the problem. If that makes sense. Yes, that does make a lot of sense. That's almost all my questions. The final one was just. What do you want high school seniors to know? Going into the world, what do you think they should know? Well, you know, this is something I, I, I try to stress in the class. I don't know how successful it is, but I try to stress in the class that, well, there's, it could either be, what should they know uh, in terms of like, you know, some concrete piece of uh, information. Uh, or what would be uh, advice, you know? Um, you know, obviously as, as a sociologist, I would say what they should know is understand how the larger society is shaping uh, and influencing their lives, have a greater appreciation of their place within the larger society uh, and, and, and appreciating how these things operate. Uh, you know, whether it's culture or uh, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the economic structure, uh, the educational structure, whatever. So have, have an appreciation of that, um, which I, I, you know, in theory, anyway, the more that you understand the nature of that relationship, 
the better prepared you are to uh, navigate uh, what are going to be the challenges uh, going forward in your life. Um, if you're oblivious to that, uh, then you're going to be somewhat more at the mercy right, of uh, these external forces that could, you know, influence you in ways that are maybe not in your best interests, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so ideally, you would develop a better sense of your place within the larger society, because we're all conditioned to think about ourselves as autonomous agents, you know, uh, without understanding the nature of our connections to the rest of the world uh, and the society, uh, which causes us to overlook a lot of very important things, um, which may or may not apply to our own, you know, individual lives. Other than that, you know, what I always tell students, and uh, to the point that I'm sure it gets really, really uh, tedious uh, and redundant is, is the idea of, um, for lack of a better term, we call it critical thinking. You know, the idea that the, the way that, you, you tell me if this is true or not, <laughs> been my, my experience in dealing with, you know, freshmen, you know, coming right out of high school, is th there is an approach to education, which is really sort of emphasizing, you know, I'm going to give you all this information and I want you to give it all back to me. Here's some more information. Give it right back to me. <laughs> Again, that's an information in, information out model. Um, and what I, what I try to tell students, you know, young people in particular, high school students uh, in that case, would be that, you know, when you get out in the real world, no one is going to ask you to do that, right? <laughs> Uh, why it's so emphasized in schools, I really don't know. But, but to develop, a, this sort of maybe ties in with the sociological perspective idea too, and that is to, to develop a better sense of what all of this actually means, right? What, why, why is this significant? Why does it matter? Um, because to the extent to which we are just sort of processing information all day long, uh, we're, we're missing out on a lot right? uh, of what's happening. Um, and again, to the degree that you're not really aware of what's going on, you're going you're, you're to be at a greater disadvantage. Uh, the, the more you are aware of how all of this operates and you can kind of engage with it critically, uh, the less likely it is going to adversely affect you. Um, would be if, if, if someone was asking for my advice, <laughs> which they could, they could take it or leave it, but that would be it. Well, in this case, I did ask you for it. So. Okay, well, that, that's it then. Well, thank you that's so my, much. That's my two cents, right? Okay. It's been a pleasure talking okay. to you. Okay, great. Well, again, I really, I, I enjoyed having you in the class. I appreciate all your questions. I think it adds a lot, so. All right. Thank you. We'll see, see you after, after the break. Okay, yeah, have a good break. Thanks. Hi. So I'm recording the these bits separately right now because we had that talk over Zoom. That was Professor Novak. He works at Pace as a sociology professor. He's my sociology professor. And I really hope that if you didn't know something about sociology before this, you learned something and possibly saw some of its benefits and how it can help you re-examine the world around you. All right. Thank you. This has been Yes, Ma'am.